What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Have the people at work been needling you? Have your children been clawing at you, demanding your attention and food? It's time to go to bed, and it's time to hear a bedtime story here on Bedtime with Glenn. Let me whisper a uh, classic fairy tale softly in your ear. As I also give you a content warning, most fairy tales are horrible with a lot of murder and other adult things that I don't really want to talk about out loud. But luckily there's not a lot of swearing. So nuzzle up, bury that head in your little pillow, pull that blanket up to your chin, and enjoy Bedtime with Glenn. You know what makes for a, a good bedtime story? A scary one. Uh, it's October, and uh, I finally am making time for bedtime with Glenn. And so, uh, yeah, I've been busy. I know, layoff. Uh, but scary stories are the best bedtime stories. When I was a kid uh, in the 70s, because I'm old, uh, there was sort of a, re- a resurgence of old-time radio shows like Suspense and Fibber McGee and Molly and The Shadow. I think they found a vault with all these old recordings, and so they started making copies and sending them out to AM radio stations to play them, and um, all these 30- or 40-year-olds started uh, listening to them. My dad was one of them, and he'd play them all the time and record them and stuff. And he uh, wanted my dad to like me, so I'd listen to him too. A man called Hyman Brown who used to write for Suspense, he saw that uh, he probably wasn't making much money, probably pretty bitter, sitting around talking about how movies and television suck and how uh, radio is the only way to be entertained. Suddenly saw this happening, this trend, and had to jump on that bandwagon. So he made a show called Radio Mystery Theater uh, for CBS. And uh, it was actually pretty good and pretty scary. And so that was on, I think, on Thursday nights. And uh, my dad would always get me set up to listen to him as I go to bed because it was on kind of late and uh, scared the crap out of me. So uh, I hope to do the same for you. Though when I was a kid, my dad bought me this little plastic flat speaker thing that you're supposed to slip into your pillowcase so that you could listen to stuff while you go to sleep. Uh, It was rock hard and uncomfortable as hell. Uh, I doubt you have anything like that. They should make something like that. That would be awesome, I think. I'm sure they have softer material now, but uh, you probably just have headphones or an Alexa. But whatever your case may be, uh, get under those sheets. It's cold out and spooky 
and uh, we'll read a scary story so we can get spooky together. In true October fashion, I'm getting a cold. So you're going to hear me slurping on uh, sleepy time tea with honey in it. So hopefully the slurping doesn't wake you up as you are lulled gently to sleep by this random story about skulls that uh, I'm going to read to you from the Time Life series, uh, The Enchanted World. It was a 21-volume set. Uh, They were awesome. They had commercials for them on TV. They had wizards and witches. They had ghosts and uh, scary stories and other random... They even have a Christmas one, which I'll probably read when that rolls around. But, um... When I was a kid, I wanted to read them so bad. And they had really cool pictures in them. Uh, And the library had the ghosts and the wizards and witches. And I used to just check those out all the time. But uh, now that I'm an adult, with my own money, uh, for now anyways, I have uh, decided to purchase all of them. And I got shafted, thanks to Amazon. Uh, Some random guy didn't get them all to me. So I've got some of them. But I have the ghosts one. And they have an entire section here on skulls. So I thought I'd read to you a little story about skulls. So curl up, get ready, and enjoy. Often, the craving of a skull to repose forever within a certain habitation reflected the dying desire of the skull's mortal owner. Such was the case at Burden Agnes Hall in Yorkshire. There... During the reign of Elizabeth I lived a young lady named Anne Griffith, who dearly loved the hall, and then she died. On her deathbed, she exacted from her sisters a promise to sever her head from her corpse and keep it in the manor house permanently. Believing she was delirious, her sisters ignored her macabre wish, and her body was placed complete in the family vault. But her kin had little time for quiet grief. Several days after the internment, the family awoke in terror as a ghoulish gibbering that seemed to mingle with grief and mirth rang from every corner in the dark house. Stalwart young men prowled the corridors in their nightshirts with daggers drawn, yet the source of the racket eluded them. Night after night, the disturbances continued, the shrieks sometimes fading into heavy groans of the dying until at last the sisters decided to seek the advice of the local vicar. He reminded them of their promise to the dying girl and suggested that they open the tomb. And when the flowers so recently strewn for the burial were swept aside and torch-bearing kin descended into the vault's fetid air, the vicar's advice proved sound, for the corpse reflected Anne Griffith's dying wish. The body was not decayed, and bright dome of the cranium was bare of flesh, and mysteriously severed from the body, the head rested upright on its grinning chops, shadows dancing in its empty orbits. That's weird. What's an empty orbit? Do they mean like the eye holes? The kinsman's course was clear. They followed Anne's wish to the letter. The skull was taken to the house and placed as a ghoulish centerpiece on the table in the salon, and Burton Agnes Hall was quiet that night and every night for many years. Later generations speculated that time may have moderated the skull's desire to retain a place of honor in the hall, 
but Anne Griffith's spirit vividly demonstrated the strength of his attachment. A scullery maid was the cause of the episode, watching a cart laden with cabbages. Creaking along the lane that wound near a kitchen window, she decided to rid the hall of its ugly guardian. She ran to the salon, snatched the skull, and tossed it out the kitchen window at the cart. Oh, that's a jerk. Where it wedged among the cabbages. Yeah, that's disgusting. Instantly, the driver began to curse, for the cart had halted, as if mired in mud. The old nag strained under his lashing, but the dray would not bulge. Drawn to the scene by the commotion, the master of the house ordered the maid to return the skull to the salon, but she could not bring herself to touch it. At last, a young man of the family hurried outside and plucked the skull from the cabbages. The cart shot forward, tumbling the driver off his bench and, and redoubling his curses. <laughs> the young man gingerly returned the skull to its place, and there it stayed, regarded with renewed awe by the occupants of the hall until another family succeeded on the premises. One evening, scornful of what seemed worn-out superstition, they ordered the relic buried in the garden. But as a servant tamped down the earth over the skull, the shrieks heard centuries before and vividly recorded in the tales told by the country folk sounded once again in the corridors. All night the terrified family vainly sought the source of the ghoulish chorus and worse awaited them in the morning. Their horses had gone lame, and the fate, uh, fro oh, late frost. This text is over a picture, a really cool picture of skulls floating up a flight of stairs, but the uh, background of it, the text is on, so it's hard to read. Uh, uh, late frost had blackened the garden. Without leave from his masters, an old servant borrowed a spade from one of the gardeners and dug up the skull. He shook the clods from it, cleaned the mud from its eye sockets, and returned it to the hall. Peace returned once again the skullhead, bent mortals to its implacable will. A few screaming skulls possessed a power that added immeasurably to their terror, a capacity to move from place to place, chillingly at odds with their stony, inert character, not satisfied to reside in a chosen niche, such skulls pursued their victims, confronting hapless mortals at a moment's uh, vulnerability. These diligent haunters often had motives more urgent than a dying wish to remain at home. In one case, in northern England, a pair of appallingly active skulls haunted a country house for reasons of revenge. The skulls were those of a farm couple hanged on charges of trumped up by a landowner who coveted their garden plot. In life, the couple had been meek, but after their wrongful execution, their skulls were set of hounding the landowner and the family with a diabolical energy, screaming without provocation, bowling down the carpet into the great hall in the midst of banquets and springing onto the stairs to bar the way of family members. In the end, the torment ruined the proud family. Generation followed generation, each more spiritless than the one before, until the last heir died childless and pettiless, and the line was extinguished. Fearsome as the screaming skull's outbursts could be, its horror persisted even when it was silent. 
its quiet presence grinning and hollowed-eyed and drained joy from the lives of its mortal housemates. In that respect, a screaming skull resembled the many other spirits that did not attack or threaten or pursue the living, but merely flickered into view and then faded. Such spirits could torment mortal sensibilities, every bit as cruelly and more vigorous or persistent renovant. Often the horror was rooted in the beholder's uh, conscience or memory. An apparition could signify a loved one's death or the imminent death of the viewer himself. A ghost could confront a murderer with the evidence of his crime or return from the land of death to reproach a heartless lover. Other spectators, not linked to those who beheld them, evoked terror because their appearance was inherently horrible, bearing the grisly marks of a violent death. Thus the five streaming wounds on its face and head walked the phantom of Anne Walker, murdered near Durham in England with a pickaxe by hirelings of a kinsman who, whom they had an incestuous relationship. Thus the legs and body of the noblewoman separately haunted the highland strongholds where her husband had killed her, and then sawed the body in two and stuffed the pieces in her chest and hide his crown. And thus a hideous emblem of a barbarous death roamed the legless smuggler of Happensburg on England's Norfolk coast. Summer dies early in that region as the lights lengthen. Tattered clouds scud across the moon and gray banks of fog roll in from the North Sea, bringing a chill to the flesh and spirit. Beneath the mist, the bang of dog falls into a whimper, and hares huddle in their burrows. That's cute. Even the placid sheep grow restless. The farmers return quickly to their villages at day's end. It was on such a night, almost three centuries ago, that several farmers, nearing the hamlet of Habsburg, sensed and then saw what seemed to be an emissary of hell from the direction of Cart Gap, a cleft in the chalky cliffs that stand against the hammering sea, emerged a figure of a man, or part of one, for it was legless, and at first glance headless as well. Slowly the torso floated past, bearing in its arms a long, large bundle, rolling from side to side in the manner of one accustomed to walking on a ship's deck. It was clad in the skirted garment than one worn by uh, seafaring men, and it carried a pistol thrust into its broad leather belt with a brass buckle. As the grotesque figure moved down the road through the Habsburg, the terrified farmers saw that its head was, in fact, lolling upside down between its shoulder blades, a long pigtail trailing on the ground, its eyes gleaming with hatred. At last, the figure was swallowed by the swirling fog. When the phantom vanished over the crest of the hill, the farmers scattered to their cottages, unwilling to pursue the mystery. But ghoulish curiosity tempted two of them, and in the weeks that followed, they waited night after night by the road for the dismembered apparition. At last it appeared, its neck glistening wetly in the moonlight, and when it had drifted past, the men crept from the bushes to follow it. It paid them no heed, although in their frightened haste they rustled the shrubbery and stumbled into the rutted lane. The farmers lagged many paces behind the figure as it glided up the hill and down onto a neighboring glen, where it stopped at a well. There the phantom paused, its severed head swinging heavily against its back. It cast its burden down the well, 
In an instant after the splash, it itself pitched forward down the shaft and vanished from sight. It actually sounds kind of hilarious. Just like this thing drops a head in and then just throws himself down. The farmers, watching from the hilltop, were startled to hear a second splash break the night stillness, as if the phantom were as weighty as any corpse. When the farmers told their tale the next day, their hearers scoffed, but the men of the village decided to search the well nonetheless, to lay the story to rest. Hmm. A ready village youth agreed to descend with a lantern and pole and a sling fixed to the windlass. As he was winched down into the gloom, he saw nothing. Then dank vapors enveloped him, indicating that he was near the water. His lantern shimmered on the surface, and in its light he discerned a long gray bundle, half submerged. It gave when he prodded it. Eh, gross. He shouted up at the faces rimming the bright opening, and soon a second line with a pot hook tied to its end trailed down to the well. The lad threaded the hook through the bundle's wrapping, gave another shout, and was hauled up the well. The carnival air of the crowd around the well vanished when the parcel was laid in the grass and its burlap wrapping undone. The, the mephetic stench rose from the bundle. There, with white bones starting from a mass of putrid flesh, were the remains of two legs still shod in heavy boots. And the lad refused to venture down again, but a drunken fisherman volunteered to search the well for the rest of the corpse. He climbed into the sling and was lowered. Would you trust a drunken guy? At last a shout echoed from below. The men at the windlass strained to haul the fisherman up into daylight, and he appeared at the mouth of the well with a dark, dripping mass gathered in his arms. He cast it to the ground and untangled himself from the sling, but the crowd kept its distance forewarned this time by the stench. Standing over the sodden heap, the fisherman prodded it until it was recognizable. With a gurgle of revulsion, he backed away from what he had revealed. A legless corpse in an advanced state of decay, its head, teeth, showing through the eroded flesh of the cheeks, lolled freely, joined to the shoulders by a narrow flap of skin. In every detail, the corpse matched the ghost by what the farmers had seen. The onlookers uh, guessed from the seaman's garb, still shrouding the torso, that the man had been a smuggler. Uh, uh, the, the sheltered coves near Habsburg received quantities of illicit silk, tobacco, and spirits. His, co his companions, they surmised, had slit his throats in a row then hacked up his body so it fit in the well. But the stench left the crowd with little will to speculate further. The minister and the undertaker were summoned, and the remains were buried with little ceremony, and the ghost walked no more. Its business was done. It had captured the horrified gaze of the living and secured a proper burial uh, for the corpse from which it sprang. In a sense, the apparition was the most mild-mannered of ghosts, for it was uh, animated not by malicious desire to torment the living, but by the simple need to communicate, to bear witness to a horrible crime in an unburied body. Yet its terror remained. Much could be explained about the appearance and motives, but in the end, the Habsburg ghost was as chilling a puzzle as any other. However... 
Powerful the logic of a haunting, each is a rupture of the natural order in which death marks the end of earthly wanderings. The ultimate explanation for the walking dead lies forever hidden from the living, open to baffled mortals only when they too have slipped through the veil of death to join the spirit multitudes. And with that, we will... Ooh, there's another one. A meeting on the road home. All right, I'm going to read this one too. This one's pretty short. Late one March night in the English country of Lancashire, a man of average height and middle years left a tavern called the White Bull and headed down a narrow lane for home. His name was Gabriel Fisher, and with him was his dog, Trotty. Fisher was, perhaps, a little merrier than he had been during the day. <laughs> but that night's journey was to sober him quickly. A sickle moon cast its thin light down on tree and hedgerow. The evening was chilly, and Fisher walked along briskly enough, hearing little else but his own soft footfalls. As the man and his dog reached the midway point of their homeward journey, however, the silence was shattered by a high-pitched scream. The dog began to whine. Fisher automatically ordered it to silence, but the sound of his own voice helped restore his courage. He peered into the gloom. On the road ahead was a figure, roughly human in form. Though at that distance and that light, it was hard to say. Finally, firmly gripping his walking staff, Fisher approached. The figure was a woman. She must have admitted the scream herself, but why was a woman abroad at this hour on this little traveled road? Even as he pondered this, his dog turned tail and fled. Fisher shouted after it and shrugged, and then hurried to catch up with the woman who had begun walking in the direction he himself was taking. She spoke not a word, and her bowed head was concealed by a large bonnet. Fisher drew up beside her and began to question her, but to his solicitous queries, uh, she made only the faintest replies, yet her voice was somehow soothing, (laughs) teasing even, with a hint of lovely melody. He adjusted his long step to her shorter one and paced beside her down the road. She carried carried a large, cloth-covered, marked basket, and after a moment, Fisher asked if she might carry it for her. Uh, She handed the basket to him, and he happily settled the wicker handle on his arm. The woman's gentle voice said, You're much too kind. Then it broke into an unpleasantly mocking, tinkling laugh. Fisher looked in some surprise toward his companion, but she was turned away from him, apparently examining the hedge that bordered the road. The laugh sounded again, uh, more loudly. It came from the basket. Fisher stopped his tracks with a horrified oath, flung the basket away. As he stared, it hit the ground. Its cover fell away in a head whiter than the cloth that had concealed it, bounced out onto the road. Teeth shone in wide-stretched mouth from what issued a stream of cackling giggles. And Fisher whirled to face his companion, who had turned toward him. Her bonnet had fallen back. Her shoulders shook with soundless laughter, and uh, she had no head. 
Fisher leaped over the basket and took off down the road, running as if he had not run since boyhood. Over the pounding of his heart, he heard scuffling and then quick footsteps behind him. He ran on, his breath becoming uh, coming in loud sobs, and as he ran, he looked back only to see the arm of the woman raised high, lifting the head like a lantern. The head laughed again, and she threw it after him. It struck the dirt and, of his own accord, sprang back into the air, whisking past Fisher, his eyes glittering and its teeth clacking. When it again landed on the road, Fisher made an attempt to jump over it. But the head jumped too, snapping at his ankles. Once more, the head passed him, then cut in front of his path and forced a second leap from Fisher, one that took his feet just clear of the vicious, biting grin. Fully caught up in its macabre sport now, the head played about his feet, snapping and laughing maniacally. Fisher sped on, too terrified to tire or even to look back, although he realized that the woman and her head were close behind him. <coughs> Jeez, me and my coughs. When he came to a shallow stream that ran across the road, he charged through it in an explosion of spray, then continued up a rise on the road. As he crested the hill... Fisher cast a quick glance over his shoulder, and the sight he saw in that one instant uh, was impressed on his mind for the rest of his days. Below him, on the far side of the stream, stood a woman's figure, tall and stolid and headless still. Around its feet cavorted the head, snapping and snarling like some outlandish terrier. The hair of its head was caked with mud and the face blotched with dust. Yet the head's baleful energy seemed to have reached a new pitch. Fisher could see its eyes blazing with malignity and hear a hellish echo in its cackling laughter. Sick with loathing, he ran on, but he ran alone. The ghost, apparently limited in its territory, like others of its kind, could not cross running water. Gabriel Fisher's adventure ended safely, even a little comically. He arrived home to find an irritable wife, soothing the still-trembling Trotty. Her response was uh, to his stammered explanation was a barbed witticism. She said that she was glad uh, he had learned the wisdom of coming home early, even though it had taken a headless woman to teach him. <laughs> she, had it all, had never been able to make that point. Others, too, scoffed when Gabriel recited this tale, but he was not the last person beset by the ghoul on that lonely stretch of road. Why, the woman and her head patrolled there in the darkness, and no one ever knew. Nor did they know how precisely when the haunting ceased, for the people of Lancashire gave up all use of that narrow lane by night, and children would not venture there even in the daylight. fun little scary story to go to sleep with as you curl up on a cold October night with the wind howling at your windows and, in my case, neighbors that are throwing a party. It's tough to sleep with since their little party area is right next to my bedroom window, so that's a lot of fun. But I'm sure, hopefully for you, it's a nice quiet night uh, where you enjoy the Weird rain snowstorm that's going on right now. Uh, so, with that, 
Thanks for listening. Uh, Tune in next time, and good night.